In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Dr. Jeremy Lurie is our guest this week on Money Tales. Jeremy had all the right conditions when he was young to set him up to be a spoiled and entitled adult. He grew up in an affluent community in Malibu, traveled the world more so than he traveled the U.S., once had an elephant in his backyard, and when he wrecked his car, a hand-me-down from his parents replaced it. When we asked Jeremy how he turned out so grounded, he told us it was because of his mindset and belief system. Jeremy is a consultant with the Family Business Consulting Group. He is a talented executive coach, business consultant, and family advisor who enables business owners and CEOs to improve performance and create greater value for their shareholders. Jeremy is passionate about helping established families transition their business and wealth to the next generation. He also excels at supporting baby boomers transitioning into retirement and their next-gen successors accepting increased business and personal responsibilities. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Jeremy hits on in this conversation. First, what it was like for him to grow up in a family where there was always money and it was never discussed. Second, the lessons Jeremy learned when his parents shocked him by having him pay for a third of his graduate school costs. This helped him learn the true value of a dollar. It also made Jeremy feel differently about the experience because it wasn't the result of a gift and it wasn't the fulfillment of an expectation. And third, how Jeremy had an epiphany at nearly 40 years old that he had been living the bigger, better, faster, stronger, more game because he was trying to catch up to and financially outpace his dad. What Jeremy realized is that for him, it's not the yachts, the homes, and more money. He's all about being in a loving relationship and being a great parent. If you like this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with Jeremy Lurie. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Hey, Cami. How are you? I'm doing very well. How about you? I'm doing great. Our teenage son is away on a three-week trip traveling internationally with a group, but it's the first time he's done a big trip like this out of the country without us. And it's led to some interesting money stories. We had a lot of conversation leading up to this trip about how he would access money, whether he's bringing foreign currency or US dollars in his pocket, whether he should have a credit card. He's not old enough to have a credit card in his own name or whether he should be bringing his debit card. We had great open conversation, but he had a little bit of anxiety doing a lot of things on his own for the first time. And I noticed because I have access into his bank account that one of the first things he did when he landed was go to an ATM and successfully get some cash. 
I was proud of him. I thought that was a good momentous step for him. It's not so hard. But again, the first time, if you think about your own experience traveling out of the country, being in a foreign land where people are not speaking English, that was a great moment for him, or at least in the eyes of a proud mother. That's really exciting, Sandy. And you didn't have to do traveler's checks. Some of us listening will remember those days, but it is, it's a lot. You have to understand the conversions and that's a big step for him. So congratulations. I'd like to now welcome our guest today, Jeremy Lurie. It's wonderful to be talking with you on Money Tales. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Please introduce yourself and share three to four pivotal moments that really impacted you making the person you are today. My name is Jeremy Lurie. I grew up what I will call a very privileged life in West Los Angeles, actually in Malibu and Pacific Palisades, for those who know the area. I'm a water boy through and through, having grown up by the beach. High school and a private school, privileged life of being on sports teams and editor of a yearbook and all that, learned leadership and contributing in my community through those early stage years. When it came to college, I was very biased towards a school by the water. I went to Northwestern University in Chicago, right on Lake Michigan. It was one plane flight away and only a couple blocks from the water, which made me very happy and gave me a really strong education to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Went from there into graduate school, got a PhD in organizational psychology that was my foundation for big firm consulting and ultimately consulting on my own and with some other boutique firms over the last many years. And I'll just wrap up that high level with through all of my big firm consulting, working with some of the largest companies in the world, what I really gravitated towards was working with people and helping impact their lives. And so now I'm a family business advisor. The majority of my work is with family-owned and operated companies. That's not exclusive, but predominantly. And I get to have conversations like this with them and to help support them in raising their next generation of responsible young adults and getting them through college and all those life experiences. That's a gift to be having these conversations with your clients. Tell us, how was money handled in your home when you were growing up? It's a funny question, Cammie, because it's very simple. Money was always there. It was never really discussed. It was never really handled in the way that you might create a construct around that. My dad was a very successful corporate attorney. He made a lot of money working with the largest law firms in the world. We were very fortunate that that's how he chose to spend his life to provide for our family. Whether it was cars, and I do say cars plural because I wasn't the most responsible teenage driver, or living in a spectacular home with a tennis court in the backyard and a pool, or as I say, going to private schools and college and never having to worry about school debt. It was just covered. I had some incredible childhood experiences and I could share all kinds of amazing things that the money provided for us, but there was no conversation about money. It was just available. Some would say I may have been a spoiled child growing up, but I think it's more about the mindset and the belief system. I mean, I understood I didn't get a Ferrari when I turned 16. My mom was a travel agent. She leveraged her connections and my dad's income. And I traveled the world more so than I traveled the US domestically in my younger years and had some incredible experiences. I'll share one memory as an example. Growing up in, I will call it an affluent community in Malibu, my parents' friends had this group they called the Fun Club. 40 or 50 couples who would do something once a quarter. And every time there was an event, someone had to come up with this creative and genius idea to one-up the last people. So if anyone has ever seen the movie Smoking the Bandit Bear, and you remember the elephant that they had to transport across the country, that elephant was in my backyard when I was nine years old. And that was our event where I got to tell all of the kids getting off the school bus, you really want to be at my house at 4.30 today. 
And I didn't know why, and they didn't know why, but the majority of them in the neighborhood showed up and we got to do elephant rides in my backyard with that celebrity elephant. And that's just not a normal experience for a child growing up, but that is the kind of environment that I grew up in where things like that happened. But again, we never really discussed it. It was more about the pleasure and the joy of having those types of wonderful experiences. It almost sounds magical growing up in the situation that you grew up in. You didn't know anything different, but did it make you curious about money? Did it make you wonder how much your dad was making, why your mom was working? What was going on internally for you from what you recall being a young person? On some level, yes, I'm sure, especially you get into your teen years, you're more mindful than in your younger elementary school years. I'm sure I questioned how far can this money go and are there boundaries and limits? I went on an incredible trip to Australia and New Zealand one summer. Instead of going to camp in New York, those were the two alternatives. And I wanted to go to camp and they said, no, you're coming with us on this incredible family trip to Australia and New Zealand. I complained like that was punishment. It's ridiculous when I talk about it now, but that's really how I felt about it. I don't know that I really worried about the dollar amount per se, but I acknowledge my dad worked very long hours and very hard to provide for us. I appreciated the gifts that came with that, but I also missed out on some of the family connection that other families might have, whether they have a family-owned business or different professions. Because yes, my mom did work too, not that we needed the money, but she wanted the professional stimulation and she loved her work as a travel agent. I was a latchkey kid growing up and I'd get on the bus in the morning and come back home and my sister and I would do our homework or play in the backyard or whatever. And so there were implications to the lifestyle. So it wasn't all magical, but we'll just say that we lived a very gifted life and we're very fortunate for what we did have because of their choices. When did you start connecting with money and it having meaning to you? Because I went to a small private high school, it didn't impact me that much until I really got to college. Yes, I knew not everybody got to go to private high school, and it's not like all public high schools in LA are bad places. I was less mindful in high school. It wasn't until college, I'm meeting people from all 50 United States, any number of countries from around the world at this private institution. And I realized not everybody had wealth. Some of my freshmen roommates and college friends in the dorm, they were on work-study jobs working in the cafeteria. And I was very fortunate. I never had to work at McDonald's or Starbucks or do the newspaper route to make money. My mom taught me a really powerful lesson my junior year of high school. She said, if you're not playing sports, because I chose not to play football that year, you're going to find something that'll be productive. You're going to get involved in community service. And that's what got me into psychology. I started volunteering at the teen hotline at Cedar sinai So when a lot of people were working those minimum wage jobs, I was volunteering and contributing differently in people's lives. But by the time I got to college, the majority of the students there were taking work-study positions on campus. They were babysitting off campus. They were doing all these things to provide for their lifestyle. And I realized that I didn't have to do that in that same way, or I didn't have to worry about student debt in the same way. Did that change the way you saw your family from a money perspective? It had me feel a little bit more privileged and blessed for the gifts that I did have. It made me appreciate my father's commitment. And I have an incredible relationship with my mother. My father was the wage earner. It had me appreciate his commitment differently because as a young child, I would have just judged him for not showing up at very many, if any, literally games. As a kid, again, it wasn't really about the money in my head. It was about the where's my dad conversation in my head. So by the time I got to college and I experienced this, it had me shift my focus and appreciate things differently. Were you talking with your family about that as you were coming to this awareness or even to your friends? 
Not so much. I don't think that I had the maturity at that point at 18, 20 years old. I started talking to my parents a little bit more as I came out of college debt-free. They did whatever they did, whether they took on loans or paid for it outright. And granted, that was 30 years ago. So the cost of college was a little different than it is right now, but still it was pricey. When I went to graduate school, my parents had recently divorced. They decided each of them were going to pay one third of my graduate school cost, and I would pay the other third. And at the time, that was a bit shocking because I just never had to contribute in that way. It was not offensive. I wasn't mad. That was part of my journey around the value of a dollar and priorities that my graduate education was incredibly beneficial for my life. I feel differently about it because I paid for it significantly rather than it just being part of a gift or an expectation that a more entitled child might think coming through private schools and college. You're describing this upbringing a lot coming to you. You don't have to do much, but you've got this deep sense of appreciation and gratitude. What do you attribute that to? How do you think that was nurtured in you? I appreciate your commenting on that. It's who I am for sure. It's how I choose to be. I recognize it's a choice. I could complain about a lot of things right now, including a car accident two years ago that still impacts me today with whiplash injuries, or I now am having the joy of dealing with kidney stones and how that's affecting my body. Stuff happens in people's lives. I choose to be very appreciative of the blessings I do have, the privilege I have, not just for my parents' wealth and providing for me, but in my job. I have an incredible opportunity to influence people's lives in a very different way than 1% to the bottom line at IBM or Google. We're talking really in people's lives and their families. And that's how I get to earn a living, if you will. One person who's incredibly impactful to me, one of my best friends in life, my mother, she is a two-time breast cancer survivor, first diagnosed when I was a senior in college. And I was too naive to really know what it was when someone gets a mastectomy and has cancer. It's like, oh, okay, surgery. And do you want me to come home or not? I didn't know as a young male. When she was diagnosed again, 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago at this point, not too long ago, sort of my adulthood, the way that she showed up for me for the next six to nine months was my life is being inconvenienced. I guess I have to see the doctor a few more times. <laughs> it was not what was me. It was not, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. It was simply, okay, give me some lemons and I'll make some lemonade. She had a great model. I can't say that there's genetics in that per se, but it, I absolutely have learned a lot through my mom as a role model that I have incredible gifts in my life, a loving, supportive family and all these things. And so, yeah, I have issues from time to time. Anybody who knows the area of Malibu, we were impacted by the Woolsey fire three and a half years ago, and we're still trying to settle insurance claims and lawsuits, but everyone's got stuff. So I just choose not to focus on that stuff because it's really debilitating and it's not worth the energy. I choose to enjoy everything else around it. When you were finished with graduate school and on the next phase of your life, tell us about your money journey at that point. You've had some skin in the game, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm in a very different place now, having just turned 50 earlier this year, but clearly it's not just that. And part of that is a maturing psychologically, but just a stage of my life and my career. If I go back to that point, 25 years ago, graduating from graduate school with a PhD, I went right into big firm consulting because at that stage of my life, I was trying to follow my father's footsteps of make a lot of money, provide for your family, work at a big prestigious firm. And that's sort of the way I was wired at that point. For anyone who's pursuing that life, I don't mean to disparage you. That's a choice. But at that age, that was my priority. At this age, it's a little bit different. 
I went into big firm consulting. I was making six figures by the time I was 28 or 29 with a PhD, which is also rare, at least in the United States, to have a PhD at the age of 26, let alone even just have one. For me, it was the bigger, better, faster, stronger. I need more because I want to provide for my family. And I was just starting to have young children at that point as I was getting started in big firms. So really, it was be able to afford the big house you can't really afford and be able to provide for the family in a way that we were still dual income at that time, which I'll just say didn't sit well for me. And whether that's gender bias because I'm male or paternalistic or anything else, it is what it is. It's part of my story and the way I related to money at the time. Can you say more about that? It wasn't that I have a belief system. Women should be in the kitchen to make babies. This is not that story. This is something that I own. It's my neuroses, my psychology. I always wanted to provide for my family like my father did for us. I wanted my wife to have choices to do what she wanted to, not feel tied to a desk or compelled to earn money. It's taken me the last 25 years to get to a point where that's part of my money tale now. But at the time, I was definitely striving for earn more, make more, provide more. And it was not healthy, nor is it necessary, quite frankly. But it sure wasn't healthy for me. Added a lot of stress to my life and put a lot of pressure on that relationship, which is not a current relationship. Make that very clear for the conversation. It is very different in my marriage now when we actually talk about money. We talk about my work stress. We talk about earning potential versus earning needs. Those are two very different things. And we make choices together that I can tell you my first wife and I, 25, give or take, years ago, absolutely did not make together. There was sort of an expectation the money was going to be there. And we weren't quite the, I'm going to buy a pony and have horseback riding lessons family. It wasn't that extreme, but there was an expectation. There's always money in the checking account to provide for whatever we want to do. So I was always chasing that as opposed to being a little bit more reasonable, which there are plenty of families in America who are much more reasonable about their spending and retirement funds and college funds and all those things than I was 20 and 25 years ago when I was just getting started. You had a great expression. You chose bigger, better, and faster coming out of graduate school. What would you do differently today if you could reset the clock? I'm not sure I would do it differently. There's only one thing in life that comes even close in the vicinity of a regret. And that is that I went straight through from college to graduate school and I didn't move to Vail to be a ski bum and bartend for a year. Anything else has been a life choice and part of my journey. I don't know that I would do it differently. What I will tell you though, is that in 2009 into 2010, my consulting firm at the time, we had our best year ever in 2008 and people scoff at the recession, but we were doing corporate consulting and these companies had already committed millions of dollars of CapEx spending. So we had some big projects underway in 2008. 2009, that CapEx spending disappeared. And so our consulting firm really struggled. I was in a CEO group. If anyone listening knows Vistage, I was in a Vistage CEO group. It was a very impactful workshop that this one leadership consultant led. And it was basically a 52-card pickup on CEO success cards. At the time, up until that point, when I would have been not quite 40 years old, I was living the bigger, better, faster, stronger, more game because I had to catch up to my dad and better my dad, which is a very Gen X mindset and very impractical for a lot of Gen Xers who have very successful baby boomer parents. As I'm looking at these cards on the ground and looking at what resonated with me, it was not the yachts and the homes and more money and all that stuff. It was I wanted to be in a loving relationship. I wanted to be a great parent. 
I wanted stability and security in a way that I'd never experienced before. Answering your question, it would have been nice to mature and learn that five or 10 or 15 years prior. I don't know that I would do it differently because it came at the right time for me, if you will. I was at a place in my life where I was ready to listen to that message. And if you would have tried to tell the 26-year-old me with a brand new PhD, don't worry, Jeremy, you don't have to make a million dollars a year and outdo your father, whatever. I would have laughed you out of the room and kept on walking because I was that type A driven person who thought the goal was make more to provide for family. And I'm appreciative that I've matured a bit now to know I provide more than enough for my family. And oftentimes that's emotional support with my kids, not financial support for my kids. So it was that game that caused you to change your outlook on money and what you wanted from your life. That was part of it. There were circumstances, obviously, including a near liquidity event for my consulting firm and a relationship that was breaking up. And there are other factors, by the way, post-recession as well. So a lot of people struggling at that time. But that game came at the right moment for me. I loved working with corporations that you know of, American Airlines, Hewlett Packard, CVS Corporation, Fortune 500 companies that we all know of. And I had that look in the mirror of, can I keep going down this path of working for companies that no one's ever heard of before? Because my clients went from being billion-dollar global companies to $5 million third-generation family businesses or $25 million regional companies that are called Acme Corporation. No one's ever heard of before. There was a lot there, Sandy, not just the game, but that game really was the right time for me to be shifting my focus as a consultant and as an entrepreneur. It's fascinating hearing your stories and hearing the maturity journey you went on, especially as it relates to the money that you were making and what your focus was on in life. I'm hearing you say that you have no regrets about not doing things differently because you just didn't know you were doing the best that you could at any particular moment. And I wonder, as a family business consultant who works with families where there is oftentimes a prominent family member who's making a lot of money. How does your personal experience feed into the way you're orienting yourself and your family clients toward each other? It regularly shows up. In my field, we have a belief system around self as instrument. My families could hire you. And by the way, we do some similar things. We also diverge quite a bit, but they could hire you and they might get a similar solution, but you have a different life experience, background, and so on. You would be a different instrument or conduit than I might be. I bring myself into my work all the time. I have a 21-year-old who was sending me a message on LinkedIn earlier, do I have time to chat today? He's the son of one of my longest standing family clients. And of course, I will prioritize him anytime I can. I told him, text me later and let's talk tonight. Many tales first. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm busy for the next hour. My children went from the high school to college application into college. They've gone from the college into internship, first job. I have clients where I'm counseling those first job next gens into the family business or a job that's more aligned to their career aspirations if it's not in the family business. On the other side, my CEO, business owner clients are parents. I'm talking to moms and dads as a parent myself, not just this academic advisor who maybe read a book or thinks this might help, but literally, here's what I've done with my kids how might that work for you? Or here's what I'm thinking as a parent, where I'm regularly just commiserating and being compassionate, given the life struggles that people go through. And that's not technical advice. No one needs to have subject matter expertise in what we do to be compassionate with other humans. So 
My clients absolutely get me. And that is phenomenally successful for some clients and maybe not so much for other clients. And that's okay. But at least for the ones that I do get the privilege of working with, they know that they're getting me. They're not just getting a PhD or a big firm consultant. They're getting me and what my last 50 years of life have brought forward for me. You talked about providing for your kids. I really appreciated you expressing it in the way of providing financially and emotionally. Would you describe what you mean by providing for them emotionally? I mentioned earlier, my corporate attorney father, who was phenomenally successful in his craft, was less present for me growing up as a father. And that's not meant to bash him. We have a great relationship now. But he arguably has a much better relationship with my children growing up than he ever did with me as a youth growing up. I choose to be a different dad. I was the referee for my kids' AYSO soccer teams because that's what got them onto the team. In one case for my son, they said, you know how to referee? I said, I'll learn if that means he can play. And in one of those very first games, my two and a half year old daughter on the sideline crying because daddy's in the middle of the field, I literally picked her up in my arms. And for the rest of that game, I refereed with a child in my arms and parents on the sidelines looked at me like, can he do that? Five-year-olds playing soccer, who cares, right? That's a characterization. Yes, I work a lot of hours and yes, I work very hard to earn what I do and to do the work that I do. But I also go that extra mile to be with my kids, one who lives in Oregon right now, one who lives in Colorado. I'm blessed that they both have pursued education and are finding their calling in life. But I want to be present with them. And if that's not having them here in Los Angeles with me, then I'm going to go travel and be with them there. One money story. When I was growing up, as I shared, I was not a responsible driver. I did more than fender bender kinds of damage to cars. I didn't get brand new BMWs, but I got hand-me-down cars that enabled me to live my life. My daughter wrecked her car about a year, year and a half into her driving journey, like I did. I didn't buy her a new one because we told her in the beginning, listen, it's our car. We will let you use it. You're responsible for any tickets, any damage, any of that stuff that you do. She wrecked her car. Three years later, I had the pure joy as a father of surprising her for her 21st birthday. I flew up to Oregon on a Saturday. By Saturday night, she had a car from a CarMax. This is not brand new BMW. This is a used vehicle. And by the way, she contributed to pay for it herself. Those are the things about being there for my children and being present for them, that it's not just about worldwide trips or sporting tickets or funding college. It's about really being a part of their lives in a more meaningful way. What is the relationship between financial and emotional support? Are they opposites? Are they independent variables? How do you think about this? And how would you recommend our listeners think about that? I do not want anyone to take this as well-researched gospel. So with that qualifier, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I don't think they're two completely different things. In our marketing language, when we speak to our clients, it'd be the first to say, money doesn't bring happiness. So I'm not going to say financial support equals emotional support, but clearly enabling my kids to have cars and independence creates the opportunity for emotional fortitude, for composure in life. So the way I would look at it is a little bit differently. My children understand the value of a dollar very differently than I did growing up. For me, stuff was just there. And I don't think I was irresponsible. I was a very responsible youth and young adult. And I appreciated that we had great stuff, but it was just always there. I have different conversations with my kids about that dollar. And my son, God bless him, at 23 years old, is now paying his own rent without any financial support. My daughter understands she had to contribute to pay for her replacement vehicle. Even with a lot of help from us, we talked through why we were doing things and we didn't have to pay off the first car because she totaled it. And we took that money and applied it. 
I don't think financial support is the same as emotional support. I also don't think that they are mutually exclusive in that you can do both and you could actually bring them together with the Venn diagram, but it requires conversations like this one. And the majority of the families that I work with, money is a taboo topic and it's not discussed with children until they are much later in life, similar to my upbringing, which was never discussed. So in the clients you serve today, that's a common theme? Money is not as explicitly discussed. Yes, I think that is a common theme. To the extreme of a lot of ultra high net worth families, many of whom you probably know as your own clients, parent says to child, sign this. Child who's of age now says to parent, what is this? Parent says, don't worry about it. It's fine. Just sign this. We're talking about trust documents and investment accounts and all kinds of things that young adults have questions about. And they don't necessarily have the financial literacy, but I've got some pretty special clients who are 20 and 25 years old who are saying, I wish I knew what was in the trust. And what if I want to go join the Peace Corps after college? Can the family support me with that? Or do I have to come back and work in the family business because I have to earn a living? I think there's a lot of opportunity to have more explicit conversations. And our millennials and younger generations really want to know, not from a place of privilege and abuse, but from a place of knowing so they can make different life choices. And wouldn't you want to support your children? You're talking about your son who's traveling. But if we don't have the conversations, he's afraid, how am I going to pay for my life? And maybe my parents will be upset if I don't join the family business. There's still a lot that goes unsaid, unfortunately. What do you think the biggest fear is of Gen 1 not wanting to talk about money with their Generation 2? One of the things that I found profoundly interesting, one of my longstanding family business clients who are in the Midwest. We're talking Midwest values, you know, good salt of the earth people. These are really wonderful faith-based, multi-generation legacy family people. First time we led a family retreat, I shared something with them that had never been shared before. That company was in the top 25 largest in the industry in North America. The five children, next gens, were technically minority shareholders because their grandfather gift trusted through generation skipping trusts. They had no idea. They didn't really know what a stock was, other than maybe if they watched CNBC or something. They didn't know what their shares were worth. They sure didn't know the value of the company. But one of those leading gens has a car collection in the garage. One of those leading gens has not just a phenomenally beautiful home, but a 100-acre farm that they would lease out to local farmers in the community. The children knew there was money. It wasn't like we're hiding it from them by not sharing some numbers or some specifics, but it just wasn't something they did because they didn't want their kids to be irresponsible. They didn't want them to show up at school with ego and sense of entitlement. They weren't sure how to discuss it with their children. It wasn't that they wouldn't. They didn't know how to frame that around a responsible conversation and being informed and educated as opposed to potentially abusing that information a bad way or being judged by their own friends at school. But again, when you've got a car collection in your garage or you've got a property that's larger than most would ever aspire to in life, there clearly is money in the family and you have resources that others do not have access to. So I personally would like to share at least some key points about that and give the highlights on how we choose to invest our money, how we choose to donate and contribute to good causes, all this legacy planning and family values is the space that I'm ending up in these days with those kinds of families, because not sharing information is not healthy. 
there's so much to be said about creating context for these conversations and sharing and empowering people with that knowledge. It's a key part of why Aspirient created the Money Tales podcast. So that's great that you brought that up. Jeremy, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? My wife and I are in a place these days where we regularly have money conversations and maybe not the end-all be-all and the extreme decision-making, but even at a micro level, we joined a bunch of wine clubs during the COVID era when our concerts and travel got canceled. So we're talking about enough is enough. It's time to cancel some. Or we will talk about, do we really want to do that experience or not these days? Because we have a very full life and I use a lot of Marriott points and a lot of my chase rewards. There's a lot of stuff that funds our life beyond just the cash dollar. But that's a conversation for sure for she and I to stay aligned on our priorities. The other one, given where she's at in her life right now, my daughter's going into her senior year of college. We're trying to teach more responsibility. So rather than give me your credit card statement at the end of the month and I'll pay it, it's what's a reasonable budget. For example, she got herself a rabbit of an emotional support animal, and then she felt bad for an aging cat in the shelter and she got herself a cat. I don't mind paying for the rabbit because we talked about that, but why am I paying for pet supplies for the cat when it was more of a spur of the moment thing that she did? That would be a conversation for us to continue having about responsible spending and priorities for her. Jeremy, great future conversations. This has been really amazing. I appreciate you coming to this conversation from a different perspective than you normally are. You're on the other side of the table with your clients. Today, you shared so much of yourselves and it was really insightful. Thanks for joining us on Money Tales. My pleasure. Again, thank you for letting me be here and relive my past and my money tale. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.